I just know I was born moving, fleeing. 82.4 million people forced to flee. You could not predict when and where the shelling will start. Families torn apart, friendships lost, education, careers halted, lives changed forever. There's a lot of tough choices that to be made. You know, nobody, nobody chooses to become a refugee. Every year, the number of people displaced increases. New conflicts, wars without end, climate change, a myriad of threats, forcing people to leave everything behind. It's a completely different country, different language, different culture, how I'm gonna speak, how I'm gonna go to school. Despite those hardships, there are stories of resilience, stories of perseverance, strength, and giving back. So we just show to the world that each and every one can do a step to make uh, this world a better place. This is Forced to Flee, a podcast from UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. I'm Anita Rani. Episode one, escape. Refugees are people that, because of war, because of persecution, discrimination, lose the protection of their states and have to flee across borders to other countries to seek that protection. That protection, as we call it, is an international responsibility. So I am uh, Filippo Grandi. I am the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. For the past 70 years, UNHCR has ensured the protection of refugees. The plenary meeting of the General Assembly is now in session. The agency was created by the UN in the aftermath of the Second World War. It was meant to be temporary, given just three years to assist millions displaced across Europe. But new conflicts meant its mandate was extended again and again. To help with its work, in 1951, the UN drew up a convention to ensure the rights of refugees. At the heart of that document is the principle of non-refoulement. That means states should not send refugees back to a country where they face serious threats. But 70 years on, that convention and those rights are under threat. If you think of so much debate around the refugee issue, so much uh, hostility sometimes. If only people could see how painful it is, how much the loss of what is dear to you is heart crushing. These are strong people, but they had to leave behind so much. And you know, many of these people are people who had good jobs and they sell vegetables in the cities that host them or sometimes they cannot even do that. And when they tell you their stories, you see their strength, but they also break down and start crying. It's very difficult. And I wish that everybody could see that live, could talk to these people and understand why solidarity with them is so important. Throughout this series, we'll introduce you to some of those remarkable people. You'll hear their stories of sacrifice and strength. We'll explore what's changed and what hasn't in the past 70 years. 
We'll start this episode with the first step, that difficult moment when you're forced to leave your home in search of safety. We'll hear from Twee, who tried to evade pirates in the Gulf of Thailand, and Sumrawit, who was held hostage in the Sahara. As we hear their remarkable stories, a word of caution, both deal with sexual violence. Part one, Across the Sea. Now and now I keep thinking, it's, it's been like, it's 42 years, 1979. But whenever I record that, I still have a hard time to believe it. It's beyond miracle. For four years, Vu Than Thuy was in survival mode. Like so many forced to flee by boat, her path was full of pain, horror, and grief. Thuy was a war correspondent in South Vietnam. She was 22 years old, documenting the conflict on the front lines. When she met Phuc, he was also a journalist, but working for the military. They got married and had their first child in April 1975. Just two weeks later, the city of Saigon fell to communist forces from the north. Afraid of what was to come, her father bought a boat. With her parents and siblings, she made her first attempt to flee. We had been hearing that the U.S. Navy would be picking up any boats that could reach in the national waters. But after three days, we found no U.S. Navy. Uh, so uh, my husband decided for me and him and the baby to go back to Saigon because he's afraid that my baby was too young to survive the high seas. Phuc jumped onto a passing fishing boat that was returning to Vietnam. Still in her parents' boat, Thuy was conflicted. I kept begging my husband to stay, and I kept begging my parents to let me go back with my husband. That was uh, something that I wish no mothers, no wife have to go through. As a journalist, I know that I was going back to hell. Back in Saigon, Thuy had to quickly adapt to a new reality. She couldn't go back home. The couple were known for their reporting. So she moved into her brother's now empty house and started to sell everything to survive. Then in June, Phuc was ordered to report for what the authorities called a re-education course. They didn't say anything about concentration camps because of his low ranking. He was only a lieutenant. He had to report for 10 days. But then my husband never come back after 10 days. Thuy wouldn't see or hear from Phuc again for a year. He was moved between camps and subjected to hard labor in the jungle. Eventually, the authorities allowed Thuy to bring him supplies, including cigarettes. Hidden inside one of those cigarettes, a plan. I've been able to communicate with him through a little letters hidden in the cigarette. Scribbled on one of those letters were Twee's instructions. As Fook walked back to camp from the jungle, she would pull up next to him on a motorcycle and whisk him away. They would then flee the country by boat. I thought that I was uh, taking him away for good. I thought that I have such a well-planned. 
But what Tui didn't plan for was that Fook would drop the pack of cigarettes and a guard would then step on them. And because he stepped on it, the cigarette was broken. He picked it up and he saw my note. When Tui returned the next day, she was arrested and sent to prison. But she wasn't behind bars for long. She was soon released as bait. Fook had managed to escape from the camp. The police were hoping if they let Twee go, her husband would contact her and she would lead them to him. Once outside, Twee found Fook, but she didn't turn him in. Instead, she picked up their daughter, who was being cared for by a friend, and the family went into hiding. For the next two years, they lived underground. They paid to get on a boat 20 times. They only made it out to sea twice. I was six months pregnant with my second child at the time, and um, the boat engine fell. We drifted for 15 days with no water and food. By the 15 day, one of us was dead of thirst, and we had to um, toss him into the ocean. After that death, we all stopped trying. We just lay on the boat and waiting to die. But that very same afternoon, our boat drifted back to Vietnam. Back on land, they waited for Thuy to give birth. In the autumn of 1979, with a four-month-old and a four-year-old, they tried again. My boat was 81 people, including us. The boat was uh, 12 meters long and about three meters wide. We cannot lay down. We have to sit and holding our ankle to give room for one or another. Just two days into their trip, and they were hit by a storm. The boat's engine failed. Again, they started to drift. During that 10 days of drifting, we have no water. My four-year-old baby was asked by all the people. They gave her a little container to pee into it. That's how we barely survived. On the 10th day, they faced a new threat, pirates. The first pirate boats took all of our money and let us go. Those are Thai fishermen turned pirates. But when we ran to the second pirate boat, they were so angry that there was nothing left for them to take. They ran our boat and knocked out half of the boat. Uh, my baby cried at the time, and out of instant, I just raised her up in hope that the pirates would see how tiny the baby was to, you know, to let us leave. Twee's desperate plea didn't work. The second pirate boat was preparing to ram their boat again but Twee's quick thinking caught the attention of another boat. There was a third boat. The captain jumped onto our boat and tried to stop the other boat. Of course, we didn't know what they were discussing. So they finally, the third boat towed our boat to Kokra Island, a deserted island in the Gulf of Thailand. And on our way to be towed to the island, all the women tried to cut our hair and wearing a hat to pretend that we are men. Uh, women would try to put feces on their body to smell terrible in hope that if something happened, they would be left alone. That's exactly what happened on the first day. The group started to explore the island. They found a cave to sleep in at night, 
They also found a storage hut next to a lighthouse, the only buildings on the island. Inside, words of warning. They saw a lot of Vietnamese writing on it, uh, written by uh, charcoal, by rock, and some even by blood, by dry blood, telling that the woman have to go into hiding. They said that uh, don't trust the fishermen. They are fishermen by day, but by night they become pirates. And they would rape the woman, and they would kill. And we all live in fear, so fearful. On the very same day, Thuy says she saw a Thai Navy ship. The captain promised help was on the way. She thought they were saved, but no one came to help. Instead, the pirates came back. We had nothing to defend ourselves. Well, they have guns, they have matches, they have hammers, they have a knife, they have everything. Twee quickly found a spot to hide. She slid into a gap between two rocks. Fook sat on top, hiding her from view. And so they, um, they took the woman. Some took them away from the group. Some left them right there. Uh, there was a woman jump onto the ocean uh, from the cliff to kill herself. And that, that was a night that, um, you know, I don't think uh, hell could be worse. And then again, something happened to me that beyond my, our comprehension. At gunpoint, the pirates forced Fook to move. Twee was discovered hiding between the rocks. And I yell and I scream. And my husband was holding my foreman's baby at the time. And he ran to me. And then one of the, the pirates tried to shoot onto the sky to scare him off. But he ran to me and then he threw the baby into my hands. And then um, some of the pirates was... Uh, trying to take me away and I scream and I kick and then there was that old man from the boat that saved our boat from being rammed two days before that old man came from nowhere he took me away he lifted uh, my husband up and he, he showed both of us into the cave so I was safe on that night from that day, Twee didn't take any chances. She found other places to hide. Uh, I ran into bushes, but then I, I was bitten by scorpion. There was one night I climbed up on the top of the trees. Uh, there was other nights I went up along the cliffs. That was not easy to get on, but it was very easy to fall off but I couldn't survive the cliffs because it was October, late October, early November in the Gulf of Thailand. It was raining almost nonstop. It was stormy season. It was so cold, and I couldn't survive up there. I was shivering. I, was, I felt like I would, I would be frozen to death. And then I, uh, we found uh, there was a big, very big, large bougainville plant. I was able to crawl underneath the bougainville. You know, bougainville have very thick 
tons, an inch or two inches tons. So um, nobody would think anybody would be able to hide in there. Twee found ways to stay safe for nearly three weeks. On the 20th day, she heard good news from Fook. He said that uh, today there was a orange helicopter flew over the island and they were able to make the SOS word on the beach. And the next day I heard people screaming that we got rescue. The minute I saw the banner that says UNHCR, I knew that we would survive for sure. Before that, I never knew. To be honest with you, a few times on the island, I wished for death. I didn't have the courage, and I am a Catholic. I couldn't kill myself. But I wished for death. When I was shriveling, dying of cold, I knew that I will be dying if I keep hiding like this. So we bought this small speedboat to start with. It allowed us to locate people on the island and to try and rescue them. My name's Raymond Hall, and I worked for UNHCR for 32 years, from 1978 until I retired in 2010, I think it was. In the late 1970s, UNHCR bought a boat to patrol Kokra Island. It was the start of what would eventually become a multi-million dollar anti-piracy initiative. And of course, there were dilemmas involved in patrolling it as well, because once you start patrolling a place, people stop using it. So that raised the whole dilemma of, well, what's the alternative for the pirates? If we don't allow them to use Gokra for these awful purposes, what then are they going to do? Are they simply going to dump people overboard on the high seas. So it was a very difficult issue to decide what best to do. But certainly several thousand people were, were rescued off, off Gogra. Those rescued were taken to a refugee camp in Thailand. Twee hoped she would be resettled in the United States. That's where her parents ended up. She eventually learned what happened to them after she got off that first boat back in 1975. Had she stayed on it, she would have been rescued just three hours later, like her parents. I feel horrible. I, I just felt, it's so unreal. It's very, very unreal. But that's the way fate is. More than five years after saying goodbye to her parents at sea, they were reunited in 1980. Oh, it's beyond my dreams. If you could believe for the two years I live in hiding in Vietnam, I would never dare to pray to be able to leave Vietnam, never dare to pray of seeing my parents again. I could only pray to be saved until the next day. I was afraid every night when we went to bed Ah, we told each other, don't dream too much. God wouldn't listen, it's too much. We should only dream for the next day. Maybe God will listen. Around 800,000 people from Vietnam arrived in other countries by boat. 
We may never know how many took that dangerous journey or how many died at sea. People put a, a figure of a couple of hundred thousand on the, on the people who probably died at sea. Not all of them because of pirates, also because of push-offs by all the governments in the region were pushing off boats. Not only did some countries push boats back out to sea, other ships simply ignored those in distress. Twee counted 56 such vessels that refused to help when her tiny boat was adrift. And every time we screamed for help, there was one time we even tried to burn our boat to force the captain because we knew that international maritime law required every captain to rescue people in this shore. And that's why we tried to burn a boat, but then the ship kept passing by. For me, it was hard who believe in humanity, who believe in... Uh, kindness, human good heart, it was harder than death. Because how could human be so cruel to one another for not asking us? They must see all the women, all the children. They must know that with a tiny boat like that, we would die, we'd be, you know, drowned. How could, how could they live with themselves? when he saw us and left. Twee made a promise to herself. If she survived, she would help others at sea. When she moved to the US, she joined a group, Boat People SOS, to help raise awareness. By that time, I had two more kids. So my husband went back on a rescue ship. He spent two months at sea uh, and rescued uh, close to a thousand people. Vietnam wasn't the only country in the region that saw a mass exodus starting in the 1970s. Hundreds of thousands also fled Laos and Cambodia. Like Thuy and her family, close to 1.3 million were resettled in other countries, while hundreds of thousands more were able to return home. High Commissioner Filippo Grandi. That displacement crisis has been largely resolved. It was massive. States accepted people back, states accepted people in their countries. So there was really a combined international effort to bring an international situation to a conclusion. That has been a, unfortunately, rarely imitated model. Rather, many countries started to grow wary of resettling more refugees or helping those at sea, trends we continue to see today. When Raymond started working for UNHCR in Thailand, people were fleeing Vietnam by boat. By the time he retired, he was seeing different people at sea. Rohingya fleeing Myanmar. I'm tempted to say that I think we've gone backwards because there were solutions for the Vietnamese. Hundreds of thousands of them were resettled. There were burden-sharing rescue-at-sea operations set up for them. None of that has happened for the Rohingya. Over the past 70 years, the routes may have changed, but the risks have only increased. Imagine getting into a flimsy boat, risking your life in order to save it. Much of the focus over the last decade has been on the sea journey across the Mediterranean. 
but the dangers begin well before getting into a boat. Part two, across the desert. It was midday. The car was disguised. They pushed us into it and threw us in by force. Sumrawit pulls on a black and pink threaded bracelet on her arm as she recounts the last few years of her life. She was only 16 when she fled Eritrea in search of safety. Instead, she ended up 4,000 kilometers away, taken against her will. We've changed her name to protect her identity. My parents are dead, and my brother was the one taking care of me, and then he fled to Ethiopia, so I was alone. Her brother left Eritrea to avoid indefinite military conscription. With no family left in the country and fearing for her own future, Sumrawit also decided to flee in 2016. I tried to follow my brother, but unfortunately I couldn't find him. For more than a year, she lived inside a refugee camp in Ethiopia. But one day, as she was walking to the market, she was abducted. When I remember that moment, I feel terrible because they told us they're taking us to Libya. First, they took us by force. And second, they raped us and were shouting at us and threatened us with knives. She was moved to various cities in Libya, bought and sold to different smugglers, tortured and starved. We stayed with empty stomachs. They only gave us one plate of macaroni once a day, which we had to share with everyone, one or two spoons per person. They would undercook the macaroni. They just gave it to us to keep us alive so we wouldn't die. The smugglers wanted a ransom, 6,000 US dollars. They will ask you to pay, and if you don't, they beat you, especially the men. They would melt plastic and burn them with it. And for girls, they rape them. When you pay, the beatings would stop but they would stop feeding you and would control us by starving us. Sumrawit reached out to her extended family. They were able to raise and send the money, but it didn't pay for her freedom. The smugglers told me they didn't receive any money and said we had to pay more. Her family sent another $6,000. This time, the money not only secured her release, but also a spot on a boat to Europe. In July of 2019, Sumrawit and 350 others gathered on the shores of the Mediterranean. At midnight, they pushed off into the darkness. Two hours later, their boat sank. About 150 people died. The human traffickers really don't care. They don't have an obligation of results. You know, they cash every time the people try to leave. I'm Vincent Cochetel, I'm the Special Envoy of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees for the Mediterranean situation. Uh, the traffickers, they don't give them much petrol in the, in the engine of, of their motorboat. And uh, normally uh, the traffickers tell the people, don't worry, you'll be rescued. But most of the time it's the Libyan Coast Guard picking them up. 
on bringing them back to the shore to disembarkation point. Luckily, I was able to swim, but I can't really say it's because of this that I survived. It was God who saved me. Sumrawit says she swam for about eight and a half hours until she was rescued by the Libyan Coast Guard. She was taken back and sent to a Libyan detention center. When we arrived in that place, they were beating us, saying you were trying to go to the sea. These are uh, overcrowded places that lack uh, basic sanitation. Food and water also are scarce. So my name is Tari Kargaz. I am the public information and communications officer for uh, UNHCR in Libya. I mean, imagine a, a big hangar, a big cell where you have uh, over 100 people all together. You are living in crowded space, not clean, no water. You don't have access to a shower. You don't have access to a proper toilet. You can imagine how unbearable the conditions can be. UNHCR has ad hoc access to these detention centers. Sumrawit was identified as a highly vulnerable refugee and was sent to a transit center in Rwanda. The life we lived there is very different from here. It's like the distance between heaven and earth. Here you have freedom. There no one cared what happens to you. The transit center was established in the autumn of 2019. A partnership between the government of Rwanda, UNHCR and the African Union. Refugees and asylum seekers are flown from Libya to Rwanda where they wait for long-term solutions which could include resettlement to another country. While in Rwanda, they're given access to services and language classes. Psychosocial support is also offered to survivors of sexual and gender-based violence, or SGBV. It's either one-on-one -on -one psychosocial support or we try to engage them in a women's group. Then they have a safe space where they can start these discussions on how best to overcome their experiences. My name is Amira Rehema. Um, I'm a protection officer for UNHCR in uh, Lilongwe, Malawi. Rehema has worked in several emergencies, interviewing and helping survivors. Her aim is to get them access to medical care quickly, within the first 72 hours. But that doesn't always happen. Even if a woman will face violence on the way, that is not the first thing that they would say uh, on arrival. The first thing would be the food, the water, the shelter, and look, focusing, of course, on the children. For Rehema, the story of a survivor that stays with her is of an elderly Congolese woman. It, it brings back a lot of memories for me. She was very light. And she called me her daughter, actually, and said, I want to talk to you. And I remember where we sat that day. It was on the veranda of uh, one of my colleagues who used to stay in the camp then. Um, and she told me how they had attacked her family. Um, the husband had been killed. She had been raped by many men. And she got HIV as a result. And because it's an emergency, you find that you, you think about your children. So she, she, she could not meet the 72-hour window period. 
So she had to live with that. It's a story I will never forget. The woman and her family were eventually resettled in Canada. Rahema doesn't know what happened to her, but it's clear the story still weighs heavily on her mind. Yeah, it's because we never, I always say, who helps the helper, actually? <laughs> These are things we never share, so you never... You have to find a way of saying you have done something. I always say what you have to is do your best for your persons of concern, for your survivors. Do the utmost best and make sure they get the service that they need. That is the satisfaction that you will get. At least you would have changed someone's life. We are very happy and grateful. We have come from darkness to light. While Sumrawet found safety in Rwanda, thousands more are still trapped in that darkness. A lot of people die in the desert, they die under torture, uh, they die under servitude. Some try to escape the warehouse where they are detained. Uh, many uh, women and men have died of malnutrition, uh, lack of health care. So um, terrible fate is awaiting the people once they arrive in Libya. So those who in fact, the... Vincent says it's believed many more people die crossing the Sahara Desert than crossing the Mediterranean Sea. We estimated, uh, but it's an estimate, huh, that uh, out of Four persons who die on those routes, three die on land, and one die at sea. But that's an estimate. Uh, there are a lot of people unaccounted for. For those that do make it onto flimsy boats, before, several NGO boats, like the one Twee's husband was on in Southeast Asia, conducted search and rescue operations in the Mediterranean. This was from a rescue back in 2017. But this boat is no longer saving anyone in the Mediterranean. The charity operating the vessel says it was forced to stop because its work was being hampered by European states. Several boats are now stuck in port, unable to leave because of administrative issues. States are imposing certain specific requirements on those NGOs to operate those search and rescue missions relating to the capacity, relating to the safety equipment on board. We all understand, but imagine you had, that you are the captain of an NGO ship. You have a capacity to rescue 100 persons, but you have 120 persons to rescue in the sea. What do you do? You leave 20 behind or you squeeze on the, on the deck of the boat? And of course, these are humanitarian actors. They try to save as many people as they can, but then when they arrive at the port in disembarkation, they are told that they violate regulations that they were not supposed to take on board so many people. Uh, but I mean, who are we to, uh, you know, transfer those ethical dilemmas to other actors? States are not assuming their responsibility in terms of search and rescue at sea, and the NGO are therefore assuming by default. From 2016 to the middle of this year, more than 4,000 people died trying to cross the Mediterranean, and 10,000 more were reported missing. To save more lives at sea, search and rescue efforts must be improved, and those rescued must have reliable access to ports that are safe. 
I'm just grateful that God has brought me all the way here. A few months after we spoke to Sumrawit, she was resettled in Sweden. She's now learning Swedish and says she's happy because she's free. But she still misses her brother. At least now, though, she's able to talk to him regularly on the phone. That's Sumrawit's brother asking about her day, reminding her to never feel alone and that he's always with her. He's not too far away. He now lives in Norway. But despite being so close, the siblings haven't met just yet. The pandemic scuppered their plans, but they hope that day will come soon. And as for the future, Sumrawit hopes to start working soon so that she doesn't have to depend on others. Rather, she wants to help others. Her ideal job, working with seniors, supporting them with everyday tasks. Whether by land or by sea, refugees continue to face serious risks in search of safety, and their escape from home is just the beginning. Then there's the question of finding a place to stay, finding a roof to keep them safe and dry. But seeking shelter brings with it a set of different challenges. We'll get to those in our next episode. Forced to Flee is produced, written, and mixed by me, Vagastrukthai. Our editor is Shirley Kamia. Additional production support and voiceovers in this episode by Warda Al-Jawahiri and Mary Theru. Special thanks to UNHCR's Asia-Pacific Bureau and teams in Thailand, Kenya, and Sweden. The opening music was composed by Afrodeutsch. Visual design, marketing, and social media by Red Havas. Our executive producer is Barney Thompson, and our host is Anita Rani. To learn more about the UN Refugee Agency, visit unhcr.org slash forced to flee podcast.